You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, Creekside, good morning. Good morning. It is good to see all of you. If this is your first time with us, welcome. I am so happy you're here. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, if it is your very first time with us, we'd love to give you a gift this morning, the drinkware of your choice. Do we have that slide? We do not, but trust me, we have drinkware. It is of your choice, and you can get it over at the info desk after the service. That's our gift to you. There it is, if it's your first time with us today. Uh, if you would like us to be praying for something or there's more, you'd like more information about our church, there should be a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and then put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Uh, a couple quick announcements for you before we go to the word today. Uh, ladies, the women's retreat is coming. So just to let you know, it's in your bulletin. Sign-ups are open. Don't delay. Sign up today, okay? So that's coming. Parents, parenting seminar, parenting with Jesus in the room. You all want to do that? So you should come to this parenting seminar. Uh, Greg Arthur will be teaching it coming up the first few Sundays in December, so I encourage you to look into that as well. Finally, uh, a broader announcement for everyone here. Uh, as many of you know, a dear, dear Creekside brother, Jack Wilson, uh, recently went on to be with the Lord and uh, has graduated from the land of the dying to the land of the living. And uh, we are grateful for our brother. We miss him. We want to remember him and celebrate his life. So uh, the family is inviting all of us to his memorial service, November 15th. I think that's this Wednesday at one o'clock, November 15th, Wednesday, one o'clock here. Uh, would love to see you here to, to remember him and and celebrate him and celebrate the resurrection hope we have in Jesus. Well, let's pray as we continue our series today. So Father, we thank you again for your great mercy toward us, um, for the foundation that you have given us. And uh, Jesus, we know that only your mercy will make us merciful people. So Lord, as we reflect today on the calling to do justice and love mercy, uh, God, it is so easy for me to be just entirely overwhelmed by the immensity of the wrong in this world and the need around us. So, so show us spirits where we can show mercy and remind us of the mercy we have received. Jesus, I pray it all for your sake. Amen. So when I was in college, I took an elective uh, epistemology. Does anyone know what epistemology is? It's the study of knowledge. And if that sounds a bit abstract, it's because it is. It's a branch of philosophy, and you ask questions like, what is knowledge? And what's the difference between knowing something and thinking you know something? And I don't remember much about that class. It was challenging. It was very abstract, but I do remember an ethical dilemma that the professor gave us. It stuck with me, and here's what he said. He said, imagine you're walking down the street and you see a child starving, literally starving to death, and you have a sandwich in your hand. Do you have a moral obligation to give that child your sandwich? And we thought about it for a minute, and we all said, sure, yes. I'm sure we could have debated it because it's a philosophy class and you debate everything, but we agreed. In that situation, you have a moral obligation to help the child. 
And then he said, okay, imagine you're surfing the web and you see an advertisement to prevent child starvation. And you check and you confirm it's a very reputable organization. The money you donate will go directly to preventing one child from starving to death. You have very good reason to believe this is true and you can do it all for the cost of a sandwich. In that instance, you have the same moral obligation to help. And I thought, I don't want to go on the internet anymore. <laughs> or watch TV. I just, ah, right? Because it speaks to a dilemma we encounter when we start talking about mercy and justice. Okay, what am I actually obligated to do? And where do I even start? So we're in this series on the book of Deuteronomy. And here's where we are in the biblical story. God has delivered his people from oppression in Egypt. He's delivered them out of slavery. He's led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And he's been preparing his people and disciplining his people and refining his people and preparing them to enter the land of Canaan and possess it. And Israel has been a people, but now they will be a nation a nation with borders, and that means they have statutes and they have laws. And what will distinguish Israel from the surrounding nations? It's not going to be their wealth or their military might. It's going to be the peace, harmony, and justice that characterizes their society. So God forms a nation, and it's a nation characterized by his justice. And in many ways, Deuteronomy gives us the biblical foundation for understanding justice. This is God's framework for thinking about it. Now, the particulars have changed. We are God's new covenant people. We're not a nation. We're a people made up of every nation. But we've seen that the principles of justice in Deuteronomy are still relevant. Why? Because the principles of justice in Deuteronomy are rooted in whose character? God's. And because God doesn't change, God's justice doesn't change, and God loves justice. Psalm 89.4 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Jeremiah 9.24 says, God delights in practicing righteousness and justice. So justice is central to God's character. He's a just God. Justice is central to God's purposes for the world. And as we saw last week, we can't dismiss justice or be indifferent towards it because that's being indifferent towards the heart of God. But neither can we simply adopt a secular approach to this issue. Instead, we have to ground our understanding in Scripture. So we're taking two weeks to do that, two weeks to ask four questions. And last week, we asked the big questions. First, what is it? What is justice? And we saw that God's justice is really his blueprint for the world, how he wants things to operate. And we saw that our motivation for justice is really grounded in the gospel and what God has done for us to show us mercy. So we've laid all that groundwork. Here's the problem. We know it's close to God's heart. Where do I start? Who boy. That's an overwhelming question, isn't it? Because you look out at the world or you open your phone or whatever, and the first thing you will see is there's way more wrong than I can deal with, even figure out and process in my head. And, and, and so what do I start to do? This is the problem of paralysis by analysis, isn't it? I don't even know what to do, so I'm not going to do anything. Where do we start? Well, I can't solve that problem for you. 
So you can leave now if you want to. But if you want to stay, here's what I want to do. I want to give you some biblical categories for thinking about where to start, and hopefully that will make the question clearer to you. So today we move from theoretical to practical. We've asked the what and the why. Today is about the who and the how, okay? According to Deuteronomy, who is justice for? And then second, how do we do it? Who is it for? How do we do it? And hopefully this, this helps you to move from the theoretical to the practical. Sound good? Okay, yeah, you're kind of like, yeah, about this. Sound good? Okay, yeah, okay, all right, good. We're good to go. <laughs> I don't know, Jeff. Uh, maybe I'll leave, uh, yeah. Cool. First question, who is justice for? Now, the obvious question to that answer, who is justice for is everybody, right? Everyone, because as we saw last week, God's justice is impartial. God does not show favoritism. He tells his people, don't show favoritism or take bribes. Imitate God in your pursuit of justice. That's why Moses commands, Israel, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. So the assumption of the Old Testament is that everyone should receive equal treatment under the law. Why? Because everyone is made in the image of God. And and, and so that basis in the image of God gives humanity a fundamental equality and an equality before the law. And as we saw last week, pursuing justice means ensuring that everyone is protected, that everyone's needs can be provided for, that everyone is liable to punishment too, if and when they violate the law. So there's equality before God's law, the justice is for everyone, and that's encapsulated well in the very familiar command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if that were the extent of the biblical commands concerning mercy and justice, what would that mean? It's kind of like, okay, love everyone, check. Treat everyone the same. But see, there's a problem with that. If that's all the Bible told us to do, it doesn't tell you to do anything, does it? It just leaves you with this vague sentimentalism towards humanity. And many people talk like that, right? They have this romantic idea of humanity. You know, I just, I, I believe in humanity. I'm, I'm for humanity. But that's detached from loving any flesh and blood human being, isn't it? And the challenge is loving flesh and blood human beings. As one person said, humanity I love, it's people I can't stand. But God doesn't call us to a generic love because pursuing mercy and justice is always concrete and specific. And frankly, in theory, you can treat everyone the same. In practice, you have to choose to love people, don't you? You have to choose to love people in a time and a place because we're finite creatures and we have to decide who to love. As the ethicist Oliver O'Donovan has said, to love everyone in the world equally is to love nobody very much. And from a practical standpoint, that's absolutely true. And so we have to define, okay, who places a claim on me? Who, Who should I prioritize? And that's why scripture goes beyond saying, just treat everyone the same or love everyone. It says, love your neighbor. So according to scripture, what is a neighbor and what neighbors is scripture routinely pointing us toward? Well, time and again, scripture talks about a specific kind of neighbor and the neighbors that we are called and implored to love, there's two characteristics. They are in need and they are in reach. Those in need and those in reach. Neighbors are proximate and they are powerless. 
Those are the ones that Israel is called to exhibit a special concern for. Let's look at each of these. First, neighbors are those in need, those with no social power, no safety net, those most vulnerable to exploitation or harm. So we saw this last week. God says equality under the law and yet exhibits special concern for who the most vulnerable. And Deuteronomy tells us who they are. We don't have to wonder, do we? He tells us those in need, God executes justice for who? The fatherless? the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And that list shows up on repeat in the Old Testament. Again and again, fatherless, widow, sojourner. If we had the poor as well, again and again, fatherless, widow, sojourner, poor. Just again and again and again, those show up. They are the Old Testament's quartet of concern. Those four. Why does God call Israel to be especially concerned about those four groups? Here's why, as we saw last week, injustice in the world isn't equally distributed. Some groups are more vulnerable to it. God says, pay attention. And why does God say, pay attention to them? Because no one else is. That's the point. If I have more material capital, if I have more social capital, if I'm well-connected, I'm more likely to be what? Fine. Fine. They are not. Pay special attention to them because no one else will. So the neighbors are those most in need. Second, neighbors are those who are near. They are in need and they are in reach. We see this in Luke 10. Remember the story? Jesus says, love your neighbors myself. And then a lawyer chimes in and asks the ultimate lawyer question, right? Define neighbor, Jesus, right? Who is my neighbor? And and Luke says the lawyer was trying to justify himself. It's a deflection, right? If I can just define who my neighbor is and is not, I can make sure I'm obeying the law. And so remember the story Jesus tells? A man's on the road and he gets robbed and he's left for dead. And, And then the people we expect to help him, the pious Jews, they walk right by him, but who helps him? The Samaritan right? And the one the Jews hated, the one we least expect to help is the one who does help. And Jesus says, well, who shows himself to be the neighbor? Now, what's Jesus doing there? The man asks, who is my neighbor? In effect, Jesus responds, well, whose neighbor are you? What's the assumption Jesus is making? That those who are close to us make a unique claim upon us. The ones closest to us are the crucible of testing to see will we love our neighbor as ourselves? G.K. Chesterton said it this way, we don't love our neighbor because of any particular qualities or because they're lovable. We, love to lo- we have to love the neighbor because he is there. So those who are near, those in reach. And so in terms of my sphere of responsibility, obviously it begins in my natural family with my wife and my kids and then with the people of God as part of that. And that's all of my responsibility. And then beyond that, okay, who's most vulnerable and who's close to me that I can do something about? Does that make sense? That's the biblical image. In the Old Testament, we've already seen this list. There were the fatherless. In the ancient world, uh, father is the legal head of the home. He's responsible to protect the children. He's the provider of the children. Dad's responsible to allot the inheritance to his children. So the land stays within the family. Guess what happens when dad dies? Children are very vulnerable. Uh, legal protection might go away. They're social misfits, materially destitute, often victims of abuse, kidnapping. They're sold into slavery. 
One of the saddest lines in the Bible, Job says about the fatherless, there is none to help them. God also called Israel to care for widows. That term widow means bereft. It means to have your life ripped away from you. And that category would include not just women whose husbands had died, but women who had been rejected or abandoned by their husbands. These women are also in a precarious position because they probably have to provide for their children. That's why widows and the fatherless are mentioned often together. But as they're trying to provide for their children, they have to plow this land, which is gonna be extremely difficult if they had land to begin with. And if a man died with debts, the creditors would go after his wife and threaten to enslave her children. You see that in 2 Kings 4. So so widows are just on the, the bleeding edge, constantly in danger of being bullied off their land. God calls Israel to look after the sojourner and the sojourner could be a non-Israelite who was just passing through the land or it could be a resident alien, someone who had not an Israelite who'd agreed to live within the structure of Israelite law. And often these people are culturally uprooted. They're transplanted, maybe they're refugees. And now here's the thing about Israel. It's not the land of opportunity, okay? (laughs) Because land stays within families. So if you're a sojourner in the land, you're probably a day laborer or a hired hand. You don't have land of your own to cultivate. So you're living off the generosity of the people, the hospitality of the people. You're dependent on them in a unique way. You're vulnerable to to exploitation, just as many immigrants are today. And to these, we could add the category of the poor, and that would include the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, but also subsistence farmers, day workers, indentured slaves, beggars, the chronically disabled, and the list goes on. But but as you can see, it's these people on the ragged edge who are just one disaster away from devastation. That's the biblical principle. Give special attention to those people. So who are they today? Well, there's plenty of them, aren't there? (laughs) There's all sorts of categories for the most vulnerable now, but really those who are in need and those who are near extend, as Tony Evans says, from the womb to the tomb. From the womb to the tomb, there are people in need. So as Christians, when we think about loving our neighbor, we start with the most vulnerable, and that's children. And the most vulnerable children are the unborn. Scripture never argues for something like the personhood of the unborn. It just assumes that pre-born people are people, that they're neighbors. You know why? Because we have a biblical view of justice, we have a biblical view of life, and guess who creates life? God. God says to his people, I formed you in the womb. God brings his people into being collectively. He brings each of us into being individually. Job says, you clothed me with skin and flesh. David says, you formed my inward parts. You needed me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Paul says, God set me apart before I was born. The unborn are actors in God's story. Genesis 25, God divides nations in the womb. Jacob, Esau, John freaks out over Jesus in the womb, remember? He's rejoicing in the womb. So there are actors in the story, which means the assumption of scripture isn't just that the unborn are there and created by God, there are neighbors, And so to ask the question or to consider the idea, I don't have an obligation to them, that's really asking the lawyer's question in Luke 10, isn't it? Well, who is my neighbor? It's a way of deflecting the claim they make upon us because in God's blueprint, all life is valued and protected, which means 
starting to protect life begins at the most vulnerable stage before we even come into the world, before we're even born. Now, because we're Christians, what does that mean? It means we never pit compassion for the unborn against compassion for their moms or their dads. We love them both. We love men and women as they have crisis pregnancy. We walk with them through that. We show compassion on the thing that created the crisis and compassion on them. That's why we work with alpha pregnancy because it comes alongside those women. And let me tell you, women who are facing that decision, there are reasons that are terrifying and overwhelming while they're trying to figure out whether to keep the baby or not. So we love them both. That's where it starts, the unborn. And then we look for the most vulnerable children. We, we've said as a church, okay, that's children in foster care for us. Because at any given time, there's around 7,000 children in foster care in the Bay Area. And if you look at these issues like mass incarceration and sex trafficking and homelessness and drug abuse, guess where so much of that begins? In the foster care system. And if you look at Alameda County, there are twice as many foster kids, kids in foster care, as there are families to take them. Okay, so the system is completely broken and the only way it gets fixed is if there's more families to say yes to kids. That's it. Now, there are all sorts of things we can diagnose upstream and fix downstream, but in the meantime, there's way more kids who need a loving family than there are kids to be placed. So we work with Foster the City to raise up those families and support those families so they continue fostering. And by the way, the goal of that is always, first goal is to try and restore kids to mom and dad because that's God's design, is the natural family. We want kids to be back with mom and dad like God's design. When it's not possible, then we give them a forever home in the church and in the family of God and within our natural families through adoption. It means we seek to love the sojourner, the person new to our culture, the person who's culturally dislocated, the person with no social capital. Think of refugees, people fleeing here, people who are how don't have English as their primary language, who don't have those cultural connections. You know, it's not hard in Alameda County, is it? 34% of Alameda County was born somewhere else. One out of every three people you meet is an immigrant, which means you have all kinds of people who are somewhere in the immigration process. It's one reason we began Immigrant Hope because the legal system is a labyrinth and people are in all sorts of places and low-cost help is really hard to find. So we do that and we provide low cost service. You know what's great? Because it's part of our denomination. It's part of the church. We can preach the gospel to them freely as we do that and offer to come alongside them in all sorts of ways. And listen, it's not just an opportunity to love people. It's a chance to fulfill the great commission. Think about it. We wanna go make disciples of all the nations and all the nations have come to Alameda County. Not all of them, but a whole bunch of them. So this is just a way to fulfill the great commission by coming alongside those people. It means we look to care for the elderly, especially those who don't have a good family network, those without an extended family to care for them. And obviously it means we come alongside the materially impoverished, the unhoused, the acutely disabled, those with special needs, frankly, anyone who is at the margins who doesn't have any kind of capital, whether it's cultural, material, social. Okay, that's a big list, isn't it? <laughs> Here's my question. Okay, which one is God putting on your heart? Who's in need and who do you have some connection to? That's probably the place to start. We have our little community service fair this morning. You can look at our community partners. Go talk to them. You can see how to take a next step in doing this. So if you're overwhelmed, that's where you start. Okay, God, who is in need and who is in reach? 
Who do I feel burdened for and have some connection to? Make sense? That's where you start. Okay, you weren't that enthused about that one. All right, who is in need, who is near? After asking that though, after asking this question, okay, who is in need, who is in near? You have to ask this question, what's in my hand? What am I able to do? And that gets to the question of how do we do justice? Three principles and then I'm done, okay? First principle of biblical justice is this. It's reflective, not just reflexive. Reflective, it requires thought and consideration, not just reflexive. Uh, you know, some time ago, Cashel and I, I, we took our friends out to dinner and we're walking towards a restaurant and all of a sudden a guy pops out behind a car and he was asking for money. Now he wasn't trying to startle us, but everyone was very startled. In fact, he pops out behind the car, we're like, ah! And then he goes, ah! Because he's startled. And then we're looking at each other silent. Now, I don't know your personality, that kind of, that situation, that awkward, it's like I die inside. So I had to do something. And so almost instinctively, I'm like, okay, I pull out my wallet and I just give him a bill. And uh, I didn't see what bill I gave him. And I gave him a $500. I'm just kidding. I didn't give him a 500. Come on. (laughs) You think I'm just carrying $500 bills around? Come on, what do you think? No, I don't carry that. No, I I gave him a $10 bill, which is more than I would normally give. And he's like, wow, thank you. And Cashel's like, wow, okay. Now, needless to say, everyone, including our our dinner friends, were uh, impressed by my evident regard for the poor. I was impressed too about it. But, but here's the question, was that regard for the poor, is that what the Bible means by doing justice? See, it's symptomatic of this bigger problem. We see needs, we feel overwhelmed, we go, okay, I'm just gonna give to this. Okay, I'm just gonna do this to feel better, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this to alleviate the tension, but, but in the Bible, doing justice isn't haphazard. It's not sporadic. In fact, David says it this way in Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of the trouble, the Lord delivers him. That word considers is interesting. As Tim Keller notes, it means to give sustained attention to a subject and then to act wisely and successfully. What does that mean? When we think about helping people, we have to think hard. What's the root need and what can I actually do to help alleviate it moving forward? And that takes deeper thought, doesn't it? It can't just be this impulse. It has to be, okay, what do people need? Well, what do people need to flourish? Remember, part of justice is helping to restore people, restore their dignity, restore who they are as image bearers of God. But, but there are levels of doing this. The, the immediate level is relief. That's what we think of, right? Some people have acute physical needs. They need food today. They need shelter today, right? They need clothing today. And so that's the first level of help is relief. You see that in Deuteronomy 24, right? When God instructs his people, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. 
So you have this principle there that in this agrarian society, as you're harvesting, you don't harvest all the way to the edges of the field. You don't harvest everything you can. You don't pick up every sheaf. You leave it. Why? So that those who are most needy in the community can come behind and pick it up and it'll be for them. And there are all sorts of provisions like that in the Old Testament law where for those on the ragged edge, there's a provision, there's generosity for those who just need relief. And sometimes that is what we need to give people. They, they just need something today, right? That's why I love Cross Streets who we partner with and April Showers. It's just immediate. You need food, you need a shower. We give you access to social services and they do it relationally. It's great. But, but long-term, people need more than that, don't they? And part of the problem is that we get so focused on just relief that we don't think about the next category, which is really helping to rehabilitate and develop people. And that's the next step in restoration. There's this interesting command in Deuteronomy 15. And we see that some people, they get so impoverished that essentially they have to loan themselves out to a person and say, I'm gonna work off my debt and I'm enslaved to you until I work it off. And God gives these interesting instructions that after someone has done that and worked off their debt and they're released from the debt, he says this, when they go free, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press. As the Lord God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Now, what is that? That's not just relief. In that situation, it's giving someone the tools and resources they need to make a life for themselves. See how that's addressing the deeper problem? And so often, justice will be getting below to the deeper need. And for some people, the need is just counseling and someone to walk through life with them and someone to bear burdens. For some people, it's job training. For some people, it's tutoring. For some people, it's education. There's all sorts of things. And this is where you, I really want you to think about this. You know, often I think we think about doing justice as something, okay, it's what the institutional church does. And so the way to do justice is to do ministries in the church. And we do stuff, okay? We do stuff to do good. Our primary job though is the church is to preach the gospel and make disciples. That's, that's what we do. That is the mission. And frankly, that mission is so big that if we spent all our time trying to fix these other problems, we would not preach the gospel and make disciples, which is the thing God has called us to do. Now, what does that mean? When we make disciples, those disciples go out into every sphere of life and in the spheres God has put them, in the jobs God has called them to, they think about how to do mercy and justice where they're put. What does that mean? That sphere, that vocation God has given you might be your most effective place to do mercy and justice. Not by finding a ministry in the church, that's a great start, but saying, okay, what has God uniquely given me to do? I mean, listen, if you can provide any sort of economic empowerment or job training or development or wealth creation, who boy, the good you can do for the world is astounding. Bob Lupton, who worked in inner cities for 40 years, here was his insight about poverty, okay? 40 years in the inner cities, here's what he said. It's given me at least one clear insight. You wanna know what his one clear insight is after 40 years working in the inner city? The poor will not emerge from poverty unless they have decent jobs. Service is important, 
Service will not move the poverty needle. Wealth creation is the wellspring from which all economic life flows. It is the wealth creators who take the business risks that ultimately create jobs. Wealth creation is a gift of the creator, a spiritual gift. Remember what Deuteronomy 8 said? But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to create wealth. I have often heard sermons about the seductiveness of wealth and the corrupting influence of wealth. I have yet to hear a sermon affirming the spiritual gift of wealth creation. And yet it is this very gift that enables our society to flourish. Now, if you're in business, if you're in commerce, man, the things you can do, you can do things to help develop people, train people that go way beyond what I can do, okay? If you have any skill, any marketable skill, any skill that can help people develop that you can give away to someone else, start there. Start there. Because development, rehabilitation, is how we restore the image of God. Finally, the, the biggest level would be something like societal reform. Isaiah 58 is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Sometimes laws have to be changed for justice to be done. And now if you are in lawmaking, if you are a lawyer, so you're uniquely called to it. And to think through, does our justice system actually treat people equitably? Does it give people public offenders? Does it grant the right kinds of immunity? Does it go too far in that? Does it actually punish crimes consistently? Does it offer perverse incentives? All of those are things that have to be thought through to do justice, but here would be my encouragement to you. Think about the sphere you're in because God has given you things in your hands, skills, abilities to do that I don't have to help develop people. Does that make sense? Okay. First one, it requires reflection on what kind of thing people need. Second point of how we do justice is it is relational, not impersonal. You have to get close to needy people to help them. And you have to stay in relationship with them over the long term to see them flourish. I love the way Deuteronomy 16 says it, that, that when Israel celebrated their annual religious feasts, when they rejoiced, right? When they had their Christmas and their Thanksgiving, Here's what it said. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, and then who? The sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. Now, why would God point out those groups during these big social festivals? You know why? Because who would be most likely to get left out? Them. The people at the margins. And so God says part of showing justice and mercy is ensuring that these people are brought into relationship. Not just a handout, but a hand to bring them into your community and to live with them, not just to do things for them. As Jesus says, Luke 14, remember when you have a banquet or a feast, who do you invite? Not your rich friends will make you look good, but the poor, the crippled, the lime, the blame. The, line, the blind, the lame, uh, those who can do nothing for you and your reward will be in heaven. Here's the thing. Um, when the poor around the world are sur surveyed and asked, what is your experience of being poor? They often don't talk about the material need, even though that's there. Do you know what they say? I don't have friends. I'm hated. I'm despised. 
And God calls us to something deeper than just giving a handout. He calls us to live with people and bring them into our lives. That's a higher calling, isn't it? That's a bigger task. Here's why it's important though. You know, every time I give money to someone, I'm glad I do it, but at some level, I kind of get this feeling of like, I'm the one with the power. I'm the one who has life figured out. I'm blessed. And I'm blessing you. And there's this inherent dynamic in it that kind of puts me in the power position, right? That, that I feel a little better about myself. Um, living life with the poor, you start to realize that they're people. They're not projects. That you actually can't fix their problems. God has to fix their problems. And you would else that I'm not that different than that person. In fact, we're both needy. And there are things I can learn from you just like there are things you can learn from me. And it restores the image in them by bringing them in. So that's the next question. Who can I walk with? Who can I bring into my life in some way? Final point, then we're done. Man, I moved quicker than I thought this morning. This is really encouraging. I'm really glad to hear this. All right. Finally, justice always requires word and deed. If we're gonna do biblical justice, it's always words and deeds. There's this great scene in Deuteronomy 26 when God commands the Israelites to make this three-year tithe for the needy. Every three years, they gave a tithe and it went to, you guessed it, the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless, the people we've talked about. But as they were giving, the Israelites were commanded to recite the story of the Exodus. So just before they make the offering, here's what they say. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. Do you see the point? The reason I am generous to those in need is because our family story is God being generous to us. Is that we were oppressed, we were enslaved, and then with great wonders, God intervened and he saved us and he delivered us and then he gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. And so the very least I could do is give back a little to people who are poor and oppressed and in need. And that gets back to their motivation, right? Look, when we're doing justice, you never pit gospel demonstration and gospel proclamation against each other. As you're serving with people and they say, why are you doing this? It's not so I can feel good. It's not so I look good. It's not because I think I can fix the world because that's God's job. It's because Jesus has been good to me. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. That's why I do it as Jesus. I reenact the gospel by doing it and then I tell you about the gospel. I demonstrate the kingdom, but do you know who I tell you about? The king. Always, 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 because we don't do justice like the world does. Because if you do, it's gonna get hijacked by some partisan political thing that ultimately is not gonna reflect the kingdom of God. You do this because we're part of a different kingdom and we follow a different king. And the only way the kingdom extends in the world, the only way for all the good we could do, it doesn't extend until people know who? Jesus, the king. And no one is in the kingdom until they submit to the king. And so there's no advancement 
There's no kingdom advancement unless people come into the kingdom. Now, the kingdom to be understood, we have to embody it. We have to embody the values and the justice and the mercy. Otherwise, they have no idea what king we're talking about or why he's such good news. We are good news to the world by the way we live, but ultimately we tell the good news as we're doing this. This is the only reason we do it is because Jesus has loved us and we want you to know Jesus. Never pit those against each other because we worship a king who's gonna return and he's not returning to take sides. He's returning to take over. And we're doing it out of allegiance to him. That's why this is very simple. When you talk about People ask you, why are you doing this? Because Jesus did it for me. I wanna do it for you too. And I want you to know Jesus. Love it. When we apply for foster care in Alameda County, <laughs> why do you love foster kids? Jesus. Right, they're like, huh? Like, yeah, James 1.27. Here's what it says. This is how we live because of Jesus. You're like, all right, I guess I'll put that on the form, right? That's, right? But I, hopefully a whole bunch of people say that because they see the motivator is always Jesus. Here's why. Uh, when we were spiritually poor and had nothing to offer God, God sent his only son and out of the riches of his grace made himself poor so we might become rich in Jesus and have everything we need. That's why we love the poor because Jesus loved us when we were poor in spirit. When we were widowed and bereft of all comfort and all hope and cast out and aside, the bridegroom came from heaven. And he left his heavenly family to cleave to his church and become one flesh. So the widow is married and the widow has a future and is taken in by the bridegroom. That's why we love widows. When we were cast out and had no family and no future and were orphans and were homeless, Jesus came down and died and paid our adoption price that we would be adopted into God's forever family. And we were sojourners without hope, alienated from the life of God and the life of his people. Jesus made the ultimate immigrant journey from heaven to earth and laid down his life and died for us that we might become citizens of heaven. Okay, I could keep going. <laughs> you wanna give me another category? It's Jesus, it's only Jesus, it's always Jesus. And this is just living consistently with what Jesus has done for us. That's all biblical justice and mercy comes down to. Does that make sense? And you gotta keep that straight or you get the wrong goal and you get the wrong motivation. All right, let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you for, for being so generous to us, for um, dying to pay the punishment that we deserve to pay and then for rising to give us life and restore us, that you're renewing the image of God in us. Jesus, would we be people who just would that be the air we breathe so that we would treat others that way? Jesus, show us the mercy and justice you're calling us to do. Would we do it with joy because of what you've done for us? Would we do it thoughtfully? Would we do it in close proximity to others? You were in close proximity to us, Jesus. And uh, Lord, would we demonstrate to the world an alternate kingdom that follows you, Jesus, as king, that more might come to know you. I ask it in your name, amen.